So, as I said, we are going to be talking about um, Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to pick up at verse 14, but I just wanted to, to say this. Remember, this is Peter's account um, of the gospel, um, and it is written to people who are in Rome, who are beginning to experience very intense suffering. And so, really, our theme as we go through the gospel of Mark this semester is looking at Jesus through the eyes of suffering. Because this is uh, a book that, that Peter wrote to encourage believers in Jesus uh, with, who are undergoing suffering. And, and I think what we're going to see in this passage tonight, and it actually connects to one of the songs that we sang, is the importance of seeing the character of Jesus and the way that invites us to trust him. Uh, the character of Jesus which invites us to trust him. And I was thinking about this hymn, Come Ye Sinners that we sang. You know, um, it, it's, a, it's a really cool hymn. It was written back in the 1700s by a guy named Joseph Hart. And the cool thing about it is the first half of every verse is what God requires. And then the second half of every verse speaks about how God gives us what he requires from us. And that makes all the difference in the world. There's another version of this song floating around that actually was kind of adapted in the middle of the 1900s, 1800s, um, that, that basically takes the first half of each verse, like what God requires, and then inserts this little chorus that says, I will rise and go to Jesus. So the logic of that version of the hymn is, here's what God requires, just tell me what to do and I'll do it, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> just like looking at God as one who just, just tell me what's on the test, God. And, and I'll be there. I'll, I'll study hard and I will make sure that I succeed. But that's not the point of the hymn. And the point of the hymn has always been what God requires the gospel gives. And I love uh, verse 4 that says this. Let not conscience make you linger. Uh, in other words, if you're like, well, I don't really want to come to Jesus because, just because I need forgiveness. Listen, <laughs> that's a really good reason to come to Jesus because you can't get it anywhere else. Right? You don't need to worry about taking advantage of Jesus. The whole point of the gospel is that he gives himself for sinners who can't do anything to pay for it. So let not conscience make you linger. Don't hold back, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't feel like you can wait until you've got it all together and then you can come to Jesus. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Now that sounds good, Unless you're one of those like morbidly introspective people, which all of us are, right? Um, and you're like, well, do I really, really feel my need of him? How much do I need to feel my need of him to really be acceptable to him? Man, I lived in that bondage for years and years and years. You know what's so wonderful about this hymn and why we sing this hymn? It's because of what comes next. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. He gives you even your need, feeling the need that is your reality. He opens your eyes and your heart to reality to give you the feeling that is reality, that you need him. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. In other words, it's the work of the Spirit, right? That's good news. And do you see the way the character of God, who he is and what he's done, invites us. And that's why the next verse is venture on him. That means throw all your weight on him, all your trust upon him. That's what we have here in this passage as well. You know, Peter, we're going to look at the very end of this, a letter that Peter wrote 
um, dealing with what he kind of fleshes out in chapter one. He shows us a picture of Jesus in chapter one, and then in his first letter, chapter five, he kind of makes the same point, and I'm gonna show you that at the very end. But Peter is here displaying who Christ is. In particular, what we see in this passage that we're gonna read here in a second, be looking for this. Jesus makes a very startling announcement. He issues an authoritative command, follow me. And he possesses an authority that is rather disturbing. So if you will follow with me, we're gonna read this passage. I'm gonna read it, you can follow. Mark chapter one, starting at verse 14. After John, means John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. <laughs> to which I would say, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> After all that, right? That's one of those like, duh, kind of verses in the Bible, you know. Let's pray together and then we're gonna, we're gonna dig into this. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you um, for sending your son. And we thank you, Lord, that his character revealed in this passage invites us once again to trust him. Wherever we are struggling tonight, Jesus, invite us to trust you. Send your spirit to make that so clear and obvious that it's where our only hope lies. Set us free to run to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're gonna, we're gonna break this down into just a couple points. The first is Jesus makes a really startling announcement. Uh, you may not realize what a startling announcement it was, but you need to understand that the Jews are living under an oppressive regime, under Roman rule. They're longing for things to be made right. John the Baptist has been out in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord. All of this expectation that God is going to come and to deliver his people. Uh, not just save their souls so they can go to heaven when they die, but deliver them from real oppression, real tyranny, real issues and suffering. 
And then Jesus, after John the Baptist gets put in jail, goes around Galilee proclaiming the good news. And remember I told you that word good news is a word that usually refers to a military victory that's going to change your life. So here Jesus now is saying, good news, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now that's a startling announcement. When you make an announcement like that in the midst of all of this hope and expectation that God would come and kick Roman butt, the kingdom is here, Jesus says. Very, very different than the way we tend to talk today. Today we tend to talk about accept Jesus into your heart. I hope you see there's a huge difference. Now I'm not opposed to that in particular, but it's such a small little part of what Jesus has come to do. Uh, Jesus says, the kingdom is here. We say, accept Jesus into your heart, but accepting Jesus into your heart, you know the problem with that is it makes it seem like you're just adding Jesus to your already established life. Like he's a little spice or you know, a little frosting just to make sure you, know, you look pretty. The kingdom is near, repent. That's a whole different reality, right? The kingdom is here is a disrupting announcement. I remember Rosemary Miller, um, wonderful saintly woman, um, who's, she and her husband started this thing called Surge, which some of our students have done mission trips with. Um, she used to say that whenever we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we really are praying, Lord, dismantle my kingdom. I don't know, maybe you won't want to pray that prayer uh, so glibly anymore. But that's, it's always a disturbing, kingdom has to do with allegiances and with who's in control. That's always a disturbing issue, isn't it? It's not just about adding something, it's about disrupting everything. It's a disrupting announcement. And, and it's also an announcement that has to do with a king. A king. Now, you know, most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us are Americans. Americans need to get in touch with the longing for a king. Because in some ways, what it means to be American is we don't have a king. <laughs> we got rid of the king. We got set free from the king. But here's the thing. Christianity teaches that in your deepest longing of longings, you long for the return of the king. Right? I remember uh, years ago, we did a mission trip over to London. And I was reading The Lord of the Rings. I'd read it, oh gosh, I probably read it eight or nine times, right? So I knew it was coming, but it didn't matter. You know, as we're coming back, somehow my seat was in the middle of like the five seats. And I'm sitting in the middle with like two people on either side that don't know me. And I've gotten to the last part of the third book, The Return of the King, the coronation scene where Aragon uh, has come into his own and I'm just bawling like a baby. <laughs> and if you know me, I don't do that very much. And I just, I remember thinking like, what genius that Tolkien could get this American who kind of thinks that what it means to be American is we don't need a king. And then here I am weeping as he sort of uncovers this deep longing we have for a king. And, and if you know the Lord of the Rings, you maybe you remember this. How is the true king known? Two ways. He has the hands of a healer and he bears the sword that was broken and has now been reforged. What does that mean? That means he has authority and power to heal and to deal with evil. 
That's exactly what we have here in Mark chapter 1, right? Jesus comes against physical sickness, and he comes against spiritual evil. The kingdom is here because the king is here. And that changes everything. And then he issues this command, I would say, an authoritative command. What does he say? Well, he doesn't say, agree with my teaching, though it's good to agree with his teaching. He doesn't say, I, I appreciate me for who I am, though it's good, he should be appreciated. No, he says, follow me, follow me. You know, I, I think, I don't know about you, but I feel like so often Christianity is, is thought of as a set of truths or beliefs that you need to agree with. But Jesus here says, follow me. Why follow me? What difference does it make that Jesus says, follow me? Well, I think there's a couple things. The first is this. Follow me, Jesus says, because his character is going to be revealed through actions and words over time. You know, knowing God is very much like knowing any other person. Uh, there's a, a professor that some of us had at seminary, Esther Meek, who wrote a book about this called Longing to Know, where she basically says, like, knowing God is kind of like knowing an auto mechanic. You know, the more you go to him, the more he treats you fairly, the more he does good at his job, the more you begin to trust him, right? You hear about other people that know him and have used him. And I think that's true. I think some of us feel like I kind of need to stay on the sort of the sidelines and kind of figure out whether I agree with everything Christianity teaches, and then I'll jump in. It doesn't really work that way. Jesus comes to these people and says, follow me. They don't know who, all of, who he is. They're not going to figure, really figure out who he is until about two-thirds through the book. And even then, as soon as they do figure out who he is, they're going to tell him he doesn't need to go to Jerusalem and die. So the disciples are clueless. But Jesus says, anyway, follow me. If you follow me, you will begin to understand who I am. If you're close to me, if you're sort of in the neighborhood, kind of following along, that's where you need to be. Jesus' character is going to be revealed as they follow him, right? I also think he says, follow me, because follow me really is dealing with your whole life, not just changing your mind on certain ideas. And I think we always have this tendency to think of Christianity as a philosophy and as like some ideas or some uh, particular doctrines that we need to agree with. Now, Jesus says, follow me, because it's about all of life, a shift, a change in allegiance and direction, right? I mean, I mean, they leave their nets. They leave their family, right? Now, Tim Keller has a helpful little point where he says, you know, in the first century, traditional culture, and some of you maybe come from more traditional kind of cultures, like leaving your family is a really big deal. For y'all, not nearly as much. Like you fully expect to leave your family and go off on your own. In some ways, maybe some of you already have, okay? So what would it look like for, for like translate Jesus' words into kind of our day and age? Well, it might be leave your career goals. Seek first the kingdom, right? Now, what's important to say is these guys eventually go back to their families and go back to their fishing. They, they don't like, it, it's not like just everything's gone, Okay, but it is a holistic deal, not just 
head knowledge kind of thing. Follow me, right? Third, follow me is an invitation that embraces those who aren't quite sure who Jesus is and what he intends to do, right? Like you need to understand, as we're gonna go through this gospel, the followers, the disciples, they're not superstars, right? They're not people who've like kind of made the grade, made the cut because they're like the greatest. No, they're, they're like idiots, you know, most of the time. And even beyond just being idiots, sometimes they like downright, like get in Jesus' way and block what he's trying to do, right? But, but what's so important, follow me, doesn't say follow me if you have got it all together. He just says, follow me, right? Follow me. They're not going to figure out what he's really about and what he's really planned until he gets resurrected from the dead, right? So what does that mean? What it means is don't ever believe that you need to have perfect faith without doubts or confusion to follow Jesus. If there's like one thing you take away from tonight, it's this kind of twofold truth that I want you to grab hold of. Jesus says, follow me. Because Christianity is a way, not just a philosophy, not just an idea. And he says, follow me to people who are pretty clueless and don't have it all together. So that involves, it really includes and invites every one of us here, right? I mean, look at the rest of chapter one. Things are going to move at a really fast pace. There's healings, there's teaching in the synagogue, he casts out a demon. All this stuff's going on. His followers, I think at one level, realize they're caught up in something big. They don't really know what's going on. And Jesus doesn't really explain it. Uh, At one point, a little later in this chapter, he slips away to pray, and he doesn't explain it to the disciples. They, like, have to go looking for him, and they find him. So you got Jesus, like, doing all this stuff, like, boom, 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 boom. They're following him, but he's not really helping them. Right? And, guys, that's what it feels like to follow Jesus a lot of the time. You know, one of my favorite places is in, um, you know, the, the, in the Gospels where, you know, um, a bunch of the disciples turn and follow Jesus no more. This is in John chapter 6. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, how about you guys? And Peter, of course, Peter's always the one to speak up. Peter says, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But, but I really hear, when I read that, I get the feeling that Peter was like, yeah, we'd kind of like to go too, because you just frustrated the heck out of us. Thought we were building something here, and then you went and told this whole crowd they need to eat your flesh and drink your blood, and the Jews are not cannibals. The Romans are even disgusted by cannibalism. So what were you doing, Jesus? Like, what are you doing? But where else can we go? If you feel like that sometimes as a Christian, you're in good company, right? Jesus isn't explaining it. Feel it following Jesus often starts with confusion. It often starts with confusion. I was thinking about one of my favorite stories. Some of you probably heard this before, but I just have to, I think it fits here as well. Uh, I have this friend, Scott Rowley, who was a pastor on staff with me at a church down in Franklin, Tennessee years ago. And um, he had a guy come to his office one time who was like, you know, Scott, I'm really intrigued and interested in, um, in, in having a relationship with Jesus and following him, but there's just this one hang up I have. And and Scott's like, well, what is that? He goes, I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus for Jesus to love me. Like, I'm just not into this whole evangelism thing. And and Scott says, 
Dude, you don't have to tell anybody about Jesus for Jesus to love you. Like Jesus doesn't love you because you're his good little worker bee, okay? And the guy was like, oh, okay. So about a week later, this mutual friend of theirs goes up to my friend Scott and is like, Scott, what did you tell you know, that guy? And um, Scott's like, what do you mean? And he goes, ever since he met with you, he's just telling everybody about Jesus. <laughs> so Scott was like, okay, let me get this guy back in here. I gotta figure out, something's happened, what's happened? So he gets the guy back in his office, he's like, you know, what's going on? Like, you walked out of here, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't think you were really wanting to follow Jesus. And he said, no, dude, when you told me that I didn't have to tell people about Jesus for Jesus to love me, I had to tell everybody. <laughs> right? Like, he was, he was really confused. He was really confused. But that, when you follow Jesus, even in your confusion, he's not going to leave you hanging. Right? Particularly, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus right now? I mean, he's not walking around where you can kind of go around Capernaum, you know, with him. So what's, what, what's it mean now? Well, I would say it means to read the Bible, to read his word, to pray that he would send his spirit to help you, and then to hang out with his people. Put yourself in the places where you can hear his word and be with his people and even ask Questions. I heard, I heard somebody last night was talking about how the freshman year, a friend of theirs gave him a Bible and helped him figure out how to read it. I thought that was so beautiful. Don't assume that everybody at Belmont understands all this stuff. I remember years ago, I had a student and he was uh, in this New Testament class. And um, after a couple classes, this girl pulls him aside. She goes, hey, can, can, can we talk? And he's like, sure. She goes, you know, I, I really don't know anything about all this stuff, but I've heard you answer some of the questions. You seem to understand this Christianity thing. So could you just kind of tell me like the basic kind of plot line of like Christianity? And he goes, sure. So I think they sat down at Bongo Java and he starts talking about how Jesus, you know, came, he was born and this and that. And then, you know, persecution and then eventually he gets crucified and then he's raised from the dead. And, and when he said raised from the dead, she said, what? She had literally never heard that people believed Jesus was raised from the dead. That was a Belmont student. That was 10 years ago when this place was a lot more Christian than it is now. So don't assume. People are trying to figure this stuff out just because they're at RUF. Don't assume that they like, know all this stuff, what's all going on. But if you're in that place and you're confused and you don't really know exactly what it's like, just keep going. Just keep, just keep following him and read his word and pray that he'll help you. He really will. Maybe you're in that place right now. Um, I, I would just say this last thing. Don't think that you can sit on the sidelines and figure out who Jesus is. The Bible issues this invitation. Come, taste the Lord and see that he's good. Don't just sort of sit on the sidelines trying to figure it out. That doesn't mean just check your mind at the door. No, no, not at all. You know, when Mary is told that she's going to have a baby, right? You know what she says to the angel? How can this be? I'm still a virgin. And she doesn't get shamed for that. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question, <laughs> right? So don't ever think that questions and following Jesus and trusting him don't all go together, because they do. All right. But one other thing I want to say about this command, it's actually a more radical command than you might realize. You know why? Because in Jesus's day, Jewish pupils, disciples, did not, did not um, 
the rabbis did not choose the pupils, what I'm trying to say. The disciples chose the rabbis. So when Jesus says, come and follow me, that's not how the rabbis did it. The rabbis would get up, they would teach, and they would hope to gain a following. Right? People would choose them. Jesus chooses these guys, says, come, follow me. And then he tells them this thing about making you a fisher of men. Now, I think most people don't really understand the significance of that phrase. I so wish I could play you this crazy song about fishers of men, but I can't. Um, but one day I will play it for you, or I'll give you a link. But it's, uh, it's from this um, album called Jesus Wept. And it's um, basically like the worst demos ever sent to Christian record companies. And it's amazing. Um, so they're, they're, it's the most ridiculous song. But it's the typical way we understand it. Like, okay, you know, God, God's going to give us a job. No, listen, this image of the fishermen is actually in the Old Testament in a number of places. But you know what? In the Old Testament, it's always a really kind of judgmental, dark image. God is the fisherman. And he's going to, in his judgment on different nations, I'll read you one from Ezekiel if you want, Ezekiel 29, where he talks about hooking people in their mouths with fish hooks to drag them off to judgment for scorning his ways and destroying his people. It's not a pleasant image. And it's an image that's used of God himself. So when Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, like, these guys know the Old Testament. They're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. That's a judgment image. And, and, and it's something that God is going to do. Who are you to tell us you're going to make us fishers of men? And who is he? Well, he's not just some rabbi. He's not just some rabbi. He is God himself. This is a divine claim. God is the fisherman. And he says, I'm going to bring you with me on my mission. Follow me in God's mission, which is my mission, right? And then lastly, lastly, Jesus possesses a disturbing authority. You'd think, you know, that if Jesus cast out demons and if Jesus healed people and, and if you could actually hear Jesus give a sermon, wouldn't that just be like the greatest thing ever? And yet, these people are kind of freaked out by it. These people are kind of freaked out by it. They recognize there's something about this guy. We don't have categories for this guy. The way he teaches, it's not like anything else we've heard before. They're drawn to it. They're amazed. But it also, in the Greek, there's this kind of connotation of amazed, but also like kind of freaked out, right? Now, demons, you know, like to speak your name, if they know your true name, they think they have power over you. And it's interesting, like the demon tries to do that on Jesus. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to battle. He doesn't have to sweat. He just says, shut up and get out. Right? That's authority. He heals people. He teaches. But it's a, it's, it's a disturbing authority. Again, the demons recognize it. The people who heard his teaching get it but it's disturbing. And like I said, it's no wonder that the news about him has spread. So here's, here's my question as we, we come to a, to a close here. Has the authority of Jesus ever disturbed you? Right? No one in the Bible 
ever said, Jesus is just all right with me. With all due respect to the Doobie Brothers. I do like that song. I love the Doobie Brothers. But nobody who met Jesus was like, cool, nice to meet you. <laughs> nobody ever responded to Jesus that way. They either wanted to fall down and worship him or kill him. Right? So the question is always, you know, some of you may be like, I don't know about this Christianity thing. And my question is, have you ever been disturbed by the real Jesus? Or have you just sort of seen like a counterfeit Jesus and decided, no, I'm not really interested in that. You know, one of the challenges of trying to talk about the gospel at Belmont is so many people have been inoculized against the real Jesus by getting like a version of like this paper thin Jesus. Has the real Jesus ever disturbed you? Is he disturbing you even now? Or does he just exist to like baptize whatever idea comes into your head and say, yeah, that's awesome, go for it, do that. The real Jesus says the kingdom is here. That means there's going to be a showdown about allegiance, about authority. And it's disturbing, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Jesus loves you enough to get in your way. And if you haven't experienced that, I don't know if you've met the real Jesus. You might have. And if so, it's coming. And when it does come, I don't want you to like freak out and wonder if you're a Christian at all. You know, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews has this amazing verse that says that those who are his true children, his true sons and daughters, are those that he disciplines. That's the mark of a true child of God. So if you've been disturbed by Jesus, if you've been frustrated by Jesus, well, join the club, right? That's what it's about, right? But keep following him because we really don't have a clue about everything that he has in store. We're gonna sing this last song, which I think is, is actually a great example about that, right? But before we do, as the ministers can come up, I'll just say this. Remember, this was written to people who are suffering Roman persecution. How does it help them? How does it help them to know that this is the real Jesus and this is what he's like? Well, like I said, remember, Mark's gospel is Peter's account. Mark was his protege, okay? And, and I love this, these last couple of verses, I'll close with this, from 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the end of Peter's first letter. He says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you, do you understand that? God has a mighty hand and he cares for you. You really can't get a better combination than that, right? And so what should we do? We should humble ourselves. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind, Peter says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's worship together.